God, we're grateful to be here this morning as the church. We're grateful to be able to read from your word and be encouraged by it. We're grateful to sing to you. We're grateful, Lord, for all of the things that you give us in the local church. Lord, I pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, reading from Jonah, reading from the Gospel of Matthew, that your spirit would help our hearts to understand the truth that you are communicating to us today. Lord, I pray you would help me to speak from your word well and accurately, that all of us would sit underneath your word this morning and just understand the magnitude of your grace on us that you Teach us and reveal yourself to us through your word. And Lord, I pray a very simple prayer when it comes to what we're going to talk about this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would just fill us with faith. I I pray very simply, Lord, that as we walk out of here this morning, that we would have a greater faith in you. Holy Spirit, we believe that only you can accomplish that work. So we ask for that. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus who allows us to come before your throne boldly and confidently. Amen. So as I said, we'll continue in our study this morning in the book of Jonah. I think this is our third week in the book of Jonah. And as we've been preaching through this uh, book, we've been looking at the whole story of Jonah every single week versus taking it chunk by chunk. And, you know, one of the reasons that the book of Jonah gets so much attention uh, from churches, it's a popular story to tell, and also it gets a lot of criticism from academic types. And the, the reason for that is because of this crazy fish story. And so we've been reading this story a lot together, familiarizing ourselves with it. But just in case you're not familiar, let me just remind all of us. God comes to Jonah, who's one of his prophets, and says, Hey, I want you to travel east over to Nineveh, which which was in Assyria at the time, but modern-day Iraq. And I want you to preach against that city. This was a very pagan city. They would have not, at least in Jonah's mind, been receptive to that kind of preaching. So Jonah, rather than obey God, decides to go the opposite direction. He jumps on a ship and heads west, away from what God called him to do. So what God does is he sends a storm that tosses the boat around. The sailors on that boat, they figure out that Jonah's the reason for the storm. So they toss him overboard. So the storm calms for them, not so much for Jonah, which I'm sure Jonah thought this was going to be the end of his life. But God decides to spare Jonah through having a huge giant fish swallow him. And there he lives for three days and three nights. And then Jonah is vomited back up onto dry land uh, in chapter two, at the end of chapter two. And then in the beginning of chapter three, God comes back to Jonah and says, let's try this again. I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach. And at that point, that's when Jonah complies. So, Surely, we don't believe that Jonah was actually swallowed by a fish, survived for three days inside, and then was vomited out on dry land. 
I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in biblical studies. My master's was done at an evangelical seminary that believes in the Bible, but my bachelor's was done at a more liberal institution where the professors would scoff at anyone who would actually believe in the historicity of this account. And if you were to ask these well-credentialed scholars why they reject that this was an actual event, one of the reasons they'll give is because it just doesn't compute up here. Right? I, I can't wrap my mind around a man surviving in a fish for three days. That doesn't work in this material, physical, non-spiritual world. It doesn't make sense up here. Therefore, it didn't happen. But isn't that the conflict between faith and reason? Yeah, I know for many people, I've, I've talked to many of you, I, I know that this is why you have a hard time believing in a God who is personally involved in the world around us. Uh, maybe you've said something to yourself like, listen, my experience in life and what I have seen does not verify to me that there is a God, but, but maybe quite the opposite. If there is a God personally involved in this world, then how come I don't see supernatural things happen like I read about in the Bible? How come he doesn't answer my prayers clearly? How come he doesn't give me a clear sign that he exists? Doesn't compute up here, therefore I have a lot of doubts. It doesn't make sense to live by faith. It only makes sense to live by sight. Now, I believe that the incident with Jonah and the fish actually happened. And the reason is because Jesus said it happened. That, that's enough for me. But this morning, I want to study two passages in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus refers to this incident with Jonah and the fish. And in referring to this incident, Jesus helps us to understand why it is better to live by faith and not by sight. So let's go to Matthew. Open up your, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And I want to read uh, this account where Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and this story about Jonah is brought up. So let's read that. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41 is what I'm going to read. It says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, I want to study this passage this morning together by asking three questions of the text. All right, so here are the three questions we're going to ask. Number one is what kind of sign were the scribes and Pharisees really asking Jesus for? The second question we're going to ask is, what is the sign of Jonah? 
What does that mean? And the third question is, why does Jesus call the scribes and Pharisees an evil and adulterous generation? Sounded kind of strong. So let's ask why Jesus said that. So let's start with our first question. What kind of sign were the scribes and Pharisees demanding from Jesus? Well, if we actually go a little forward in our text over to Matthew 16, go over to Matthew 16, I think we'll get some help because the Pharisees have a similar encounter with Jesus in Matthew 16, verses 1 to 4. They, they come to Jesus, they ask for a sign, and Jesus invokes this sign of Jonah. So look at this again. I want to read this for us. Uh, Matthew 16, verses 1 to 4. Look at this account. The Pharisees and Sadducees, Approach and tested Jesus, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Same thing. Hey, we want to see a sign. Jesus replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left and went away. Okay. So I, I think Jesus' very specific response here when it comes to the weather helps us to understand the kind of the sign that the Pharisees were asking Jesus for back in Matthew 12. So in Matthew 16, Jesus talks about our ability to forecast the weather, right? So apparently to these people in, in the evening, if the sky was red, that, you know, that meant we were going to get some fair weather. And earlier in the day, if the sky was red, that meant that we'd get some stormy weather. So you could look at the sky, see a sign, read the sky, and then you could then determine what the weather was going to be. So this was a sign that the scribes and Pharisees could understand. It was a sign that they could wrap their head around. So Jesus refers to their weather forecasting ability, but then tells them, hey, you can read the sky, but you can't read what's happening right before you. You can't read the signs that have already been given, specifically the sign of Jonah, which we'll talk about in just a second. But the Pharisees want a sign that makes sense to them. And that's a reasonable request, right? Jesus, you're making a lot of claims. You're saying you're the Messiah. You're saying you're the Son of God. You claim that you can forgive sins. This is a lot for us to take in. Just give us a sign that will prove all of this stuff, and we're good, right? It seems reasonable. But it's not as if Jesus just came on the scene, and that he was unknown to these scribes and Pharisees. We're very much into the ministry of Jesus at this point. And, and, and including the scribes and the Pharisees, a lot of people have witnessed Jesus in his miracles and sat under his teaching. So if you just look at the Gospel of Matthew before uh, we hit chapter 12, Okay, and we look at what Jesus has done in view of everyone. He's healed someone of leprosy. He healed a man with paralysis from very far away. He calmed the storm, controlling the weather. Pretty clear sign. Uh, he raised a little girl from the dead. That's a pretty clear sign. He restored sight to the blind. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, the one who announced 
that Jesus was the Messiah. John the Baptist was in prison. And he sends his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, to Jesus because even he was starting to question if Jesus was the one. So he sends in Matthew 11, he sends his disciples to go see Jesus to say, hey, are you actually the Messiah? Are you the one that we should be waiting for and looking for? And Jesus says, hey, go tell John that sight has been brought to the blind, that the sick are healed, that demons are being cast out. Yes, I'm the one. Look at the signs. I am the Messiah who's come to bring the kingdom of God. Even in earlier Matthew 12, the text is very clear. If you go read it, that Jesus, he healed a man's hand that was, that was withered and crippled. And then he cast a demon out of someone that was making him blind and mute. And the text is very clear to say that Jesus did that in view of the scribes and the Pharisees. So we know that these people talking to Jesus in Matthew 12 have seen all kinds of signs and miracles. So sure, asking for a sign is a reasonable request, but Jesus had spent the better part of his ministry giving signs from heaven that he indeed was the son of God, the Messiah that they were waiting for. What else did they need to see? But the scribes and the Pharisees, they wanted more. They wanted a sign that they could have command over. You know, you can become skilled at reading the sky. You can develop expertise when it comes to forecasting the weather, looking into the sky and reading the signs. This is the kind of sign they wanted. A sign where they could be the ones to verify to the masses, Jesus is who he says he is or he's not who he says he is. They wanted to be the judge. You know, it's the feeling I have whenever I see a magician perform. I love America's Got Talent. I don't know if you watched that show and a magician just won it uh, this year. But I'm also very skeptical. I'm the guy who's like, no, I want to see you do this, but I want to check everything. I want to check the deck of cards. I want to look behind the curtain. Let's set up cameras at every angle in slow motion. Because if you actually had magic, you would be able to give me a sign that was unmistakable without any question, with no scrutiny, that you could do this. But of course, they don't have magic, right? This is what the scribes and Pharisees are doing. They are asking for a sign on their own terms so they can personally verify the authenticity of Jesus. And I think we all can relate with the scribes and Pharisees here. I think sometimes we jump on their case. But I think we can relate. We weren't alive when Jesus was here in the flesh. We didn't witness all of the miracles, we would like for God to give us a sign that he's there that's clear to us. You know, it's like, God, I don't want you to give me a sign or I don't want you to give a sign to someone else and then they tell me about the sign. I don't want the sign to come in a sermon. I don't want the sign to be ambiguous to the point that I can rationalize it in my head. I want a personal, clear sign from you that's unmistakable in my head that you're there. I mean, we can all relate with that, right? And what was Jesus' response to this request from the scribes and the Pharisees? Look at verse 39, Matthew 12. Verse 39, he says, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So our second question, what is this sign of the prophet Jonah? 
Because Jesus says that this is the sign that they are going to get, and frankly, this is the sign that we get. And it is sufficient. So here's how Jesus describes the sign of Jonah. Look at verses 40 to 41. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. As we mentioned before, God had instructed this prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it. Jonah disobeys, finds himself headed the opposite direction. He's on, in the middle of the sea on a ship. God sends a storm. Sailors find out Jonah's the reason for the storm, toss him overboard, and now he is swallowed by a giant sea monster. But before we scoff at the apparent ridiculousness of this story, you have to understand that this story is just filled with thick biblical meaning. Uh, in Jewish culture and literature, the sea was considered the place where evil dwelled. Uh, as Israel was located on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, right, it was the sea where the big storms would form and come ashore. It was the sea where the large sea monsters dwell, all the big creatures in that lived inside the sea, right? The sea was a place of darkness and chaos, so they associated that with evil and death. So if you think about it, uh, if you look at Psalm 74, the psalmist is writing this psalm to God and he's crying out to God and lament and he's frustrated and he's angry because Jerusalem was just destroyed by the Babylonians. So think about it. your city is destroyed. And so you're writing to God, a poem to God, expressing your heart out to God. And look at what the psalmist writes. I want you to see this. Psalm 74, verses nine to 14. The psalmist says, there are no signs for us to see. God, where are you? There's no longer a prophet. And none of us know how long this will last. Remember, they just got destroyed. God, how long will the enemy mock? Will the foe insult your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand? Stretch out your right hand and destroy them. And then the psalmist, he tells God about God's ability. Look at this. God, my king, is from ancient times performing saving acts on the earth. Look at verse 13. You divided the sea with your strength. You smashed the head of the sea monsters in the water. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You fed him to the creatures of the desert. Right? The psalmist cries out to God because he knows God can defeat evil. And the imagery he uses here is in reference to evil and death. And the sea and the creatures inside of it is symbolism for evil and death. So the psalmist saying, God, you can destroy evil and death. I mean, this is also why in Revelation chapter 21, uh, the apostle John is writing and he gets a vision of the new heavens and new earth where all of God's people will be after Christ returns. And he describes what the new heavens and new earth is gonna be like. And this is the first thing he says about it in verse one. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth passed away and look at the first description, the sea was no more. Is he saying there's no water in the new heavens and new earth? No, he's saying evil and death does not exist in the new heavens and new earth. 
And so when Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish in the sea, a Jewish audience reading this story would feel in their gut that Jonah is passing through evil and death itself. And God then commands the fish to vomit Jonah back on the dry land so Jonah could go and do what he was called to do to preach to Nineveh. So Jonah passed through death and evil itself on his journey to preach his message to the Ninevites. And through that message, the Ninevites would believe and repent. The sign of Jonah is that God, in his grace, sends his prophet through evil and death to bring about salvation to the sinner. It's the sign of Jonah. And Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Just as Jonah was sent to an evil people, Jesus, the Son of God, was sent to an evil world. Just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in what symbolized death, Jesus spent three days in actual death. Just as Jonah emerged from the sea and preached to Nineveh, Jesus defeated death, emerged from the grave, and accomplished redemption for all who would put their faith in him. And so as Jesus is talking to these scribes and Pharisees, what Jesus is telling them, hey, your sign is going to be my resurrection. That's your sign. I will be in the earth three days and I will rise again from the dead. Look at verse 41 with me one more time. The men of, look at this. And so Jesus says this to them, my sign will be, The resurrection, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, look, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is commenting on how the scribes and Pharisees can't even discern like they do the weather that the Messiah himself is standing in their presence. And Jesus predicts that in the future, they're not even going to believe after he walks out of the grave. And due to this, at the end of the age, these scribes and Pharisees will be found guilty before God, while the nation of Nineveh, or the city of Nineveh, will be found forgiven before God because they believed at the preaching of Jonah, and these scribes and Pharisees won't even believe after witnessing the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, when we began this study in Jonah, we said that we would get a front row seat at the sin inside of Jonah's heart so we could look at the mirror and see where maybe that exists in our own heart. But this morning, it's the heart of these scribes and Pharisees that we need to evaluate our hearts against. See, as you read the Gospel of Matthew, if you just go read the first several chapters of it, you encounter all of these stories of ordinary people who had faith in Jesus. The gospel, it it goes out of its way to say that these people had faith in Jesus. And so the miracles in the gospel of Matthew, they're usually linked with someone that the gospel says has faith. It talks about their great faith and then how Jesus performed this miracle, but it's the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus refuses to give a sign. And the reason for this is because the scribes and Pharisees lived by sight, not by faith. They demanded a sign precisely because they did not have faith. 
It's better to live by faith and not by sight. See, the scriptures tell us that God created all of us with a mind and a heart. Our mind is our intellect, our reasoning, and our heart is how we kind of take all of that information and we put it into practice. Our heart is the core of our motivations. All right, so we process information in our mind and our heart kind of turns that into action. And so what happens is there's a disconnect between the two. Let me prove it to you. You can be convinced of something in your mind and yet not live according to that. Right? I'm convinced in my mind that my Sunday morning routine of getting a sausage biscuit off the dollar menu at McDonald's is bad for me. But my heart wants it, so I do it. I know it's not good for me. I'm convinced that my marriage will be better if I relentlessly served my wife and was not concerned about being served back. I'm convinced of that. I counsel people in that direction, but my heart wants her to serve me more than I serve her. Isn't this also addiction? When your mind is convinced that something's destructive, but you just can't go away from it. The flip side is true too. You can live according to something and your mind not fully understand. You do this every time you fly in an airplane. You trust the people who designed that plane, built that plane, maintained that plane, fly that plane more than you trust yourself because you can't do any of those things. You trust them enough to get onto that aluminum tube and fly at 600 miles per hour at 30,000 feet in the air knowing if anything goes wrong, that's it. This is faith. Living according to something where you don't have all the information and you wouldn't be able to do it yourself. But you trust the object of your faith. You trust what you're living according to over and above your own intellect. And this is why it's better to live by faith than not by sight when it comes to your belief in God. Because to live by sight is to place your faith in yourself on your own intellect, on your own ability to reason, on your own ability to make yourself right with God. And we live in a fallen world and we have a fallen intellect. If you're in Christ, God is redeeming and renewing your mind, but your sinful flesh is there and it will be there till he brings us home. So while we're in this life, we live by faith. To live by faith is to live not trusting in yourself, but trusting in someone else. And of course, to live by faith can be dangerous if the object of your faith is a fraud. This is why the sign of Jonah, i.e. the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is sufficient for us to live fully by faith. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the sign of Jonah, is our validation that Jesus is God. He is who he says he is, and he is trustworthy to place your full faith in. This is why faith is required for salvation and not works. Because if works were our pathway to salvation, then the object of our faith would be ourselves. But God is glorified when he's the object of our faith. I mean, this is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves, but it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. 
So when we say that one has to have faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, what we're saying is that one must in their heart believe that they have sinned before God and they need his grace, they need his mercy. And that Jesus Christ, the son of God, came to make a way for us to be saved and to be the object of our faith. He lives a life without sin and dies a sinner death on the cross because he takes on the wrath of God. So he goes into the grave. He is dead because our sins placed upon him and the wrath of God is upon him. But because he's the perfect son of God, because he's the Messiah, because he is the final sacrifice for our sin, he defeats death. He satisfies God's wrath. He emerges from the grave, now able to apply redemption and forgiveness to anyone who will put their faith in him. To anyone who says, my only hope before you, God, is him. Jesus, my faith is there. It's not in me to impress you. And the fact that he walked out of the grave in all of history has not been able to disprove that. That is our sign that he's the one that we put our faith in. He's the one who's trustworthy. He's the one who says, who is who he says he is. And have faith in Jesus is to trust in his life and his death and his resurrection for our salvation. That's it, that's faith. Not to trust our works, not to trust our understanding, but Jesus. Why are you worthy of heaven? It's because Jesus is worthy of heaven. He's the one who did it. He knows how to do it. He's, that's the person I trust in. It's not me. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We, we walk by faith and not sight. And so do you have faith in Jesus? Or do you live by sight? This gets to our last question on why Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees an evil and adulterous generation. And the reason is because this generation of scribes and Pharisees was the most privileged. They had the scriptures, the Old Testament. They were born into the covenant community of God. They were alive when Jesus Christ was present in the flesh. They witnessed his miracles. They saw his teaching and sat under his teaching. Yet they still demanded to live by sight. They were adulterous because they were unfaithful to God and more faithful to themselves. And the reality is that the demand to live by sight, to have a sign from God other than Jesus himself, is the sin of the garden in Genesis 3. That's what it is. God, I don't want to depend on you. I want to depend on myself. I want the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want to be under your authority. It's the sin of the garden. In his commentary, uh, James Edward, his commentary on the book of Luke, he says this. He says, the longing for a more spiritual revelation than Jesus, you know, a longing for a sign other than Jesus, is the mother of all heresies. The original temptation of the serpent, no longer simply to know God, but to be God. It is to believe in your heart that you are more trustworthy, your instincts are more pure, your intellect is more godly than God himself, his son Jesus, and his word given to us in the Bible. And so the question for this morning is this, who do you trust more? Do you trust Jesus or do you trust yourself? Which one 
is more worthy of your faith. You know, a lot of people, they accuse people of faith as being anti-intellectual. But that's not the case. God gave us minds and intellect to study. God's creation is vast and complex. And he gave us mind to study it and discover it and to innovate and create and do all of these things to grow in knowledge. It's not anti-intellectual. But if I could be blunt, living by faith is anti-narcissistic. It's to say that my mind is not the pinnacle of all creation and I can live my life with faith in a creator. Do you trust in Jesus? Do you believe that the only way to be forgiven of your sin and to have a relationship with God is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe that he paid for your sin? Do you believe that when God looks upon you, He sees you as righteous, not because you produce the righteous, because Jesus produced the righteousness. Do you believe that as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, you will be resurrected from the dead in eternal life? Because this is what it means to have faith in Jesus, to trust him more than yourself. And listen, your joy is found in living by faith in the one who walked out of of the grave. Not by living by sight, trusting in yourself, but trusting in Jesus. He is worthy of your faith. Knowing that there is going to be a day when he returns or he brings us home, whichever one comes first, that there'll be that moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, that we'll see him face to face. And our faith at that moment will become sight. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we just think upon what it means to have faith in you, Lord, I pray that this would cause us in our hearts to evaluate what is the true object of my faith? Who is it that I really trust for my salvation? Is it my own works? Is it how much I read the Bible? Is it how I compare myself to other people in the world and I see myself as a better person? Is it my own intellect? Is it my own ability to read or discern signs? Lord, do we trust in ourselves or do we trust fully in Jesus? Lord, I pray for every one of us in this room that as a result of thinking about your scripture this morning, that you would build our faith in the Son of God. That we would walk out of here with more faith in Jesus and as a result of more faith in Jesus, more rest in this life. We can rest because Jesus has paid every bit of it. We can rest because we have his righteousness. We can rest because we don't have to guess if we're welcomed in the kingdom or not. So Lord, I pray you would bring us rest. And I pray you would build our faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.